And now we want to share something special with our listeners, introducing Lit and Lit Extra, the new hot sauce IEX just created. We're calling it the official unofficial hot sauce of the stock market. It's a perfect blend of spice and high performance flavor. You'll definitely want to get your hands on some. You can check it out at iextrading.com slash podcast to get your fix while supplies last or tag us at IEX and let us know how you like it. Holy shit, we're live. That's what I meant by bad Irish accents, guys. So yeah. <laughs> right. I got out of the way early. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the third installment of the inaugural Boxes and Lines live series. And for those who haven't joined us on the previous two days, uh, just for context, John and I do run a podcast called Boxes and Lines. Long story where it got its name from. Uh, but this is the first time we've done a series of live events. Um, the topic today is a hot topic. It's uh, like real estate in a COVID world. And we thought, who better to ask as guests but CBRE? Uh, obviously, people probably know them from their broad expertise in the space. Uh, but I thought I'd give a plug to our two pals over there, Rob and Rocco. Many people don't know that IEX from day one has been with CBRE. They found our first office, which was a uh, windowless conference room that soon got called a not a nice version of a locker room where we paid on a month-to-month -month basis and now we're in our fourth office and i always say i don't like when vendors say they want to be partners but um if there's ever been a vendor partner that ix has experienced over our last nine years at cbre they've been phenomenal company phenomenal guys to work with they also introduced us to today's two guests uh, sarah gibbons and spencer levy and before i asked them to introduce themselves i did a little bit of Google creep. I actually just went to CBRE's uh, homepage <laughs> and I thought this was great. On the first page, it sort of like sets the scene for our podcast today. It says, see the future of work. The global pandemic has fundamentally altered the way we live, work and invest, forcing us to reimagine everything, especially how and where business mm -hmm. gets done. Uh, Spencer and Sarah, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves and then, then we'll, we'll get cracking. Sure thing. Hi, everyone. Great to be here with you today. I'm Sarah Gibbons. I lead CBRE's workplace strategy team in the Northeast. Hello, I'm Spencer Levy. I am the chairman of America's Research, senior economic advisor for CBRE, uh, former New Yorker, but New Yorker at heart, and delighted to be here. Thanks very much, guys. And John, why were you shaking your head at me before I introduced them? What? I wasn't you shaking think? your head. I don't know. You're so paranoid. Yeah, we, 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 we argue here. quite a bit on our podcast. It's okay. I guess we'll yeah. edit this part out of the... Uh, the, the so the we're, we're not going to edit it out. It's fine. It's what people tune in. Okay. Love it. <laughs> Let's right. get going. New York, New York City real estate state. Um, so, <laughs> 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 no, I swear. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of factors around New York City real estate. Obviously, we know what's going on now mm -hmm. with COVID. Okay. If you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit, what what's... What are the knowns and you know what's 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 known and what's not known today? You want to start us off, Spencer, and I'll chime in. Sure thing. Well, the 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 knowns are actually not as known as you think. So I'll just put <laughs> right to the chase. There've been a lot of surveys that have been done over the last year that say things like people don't have to go back into the office, people don't want to go back into the office, you're not required to go back in the office. And I believe that everybody fills out these surveys in good faith when they do it. At the same time, I was a music fan when I was a kid, and the band I liked was called Asia. And they had a song which was called The Heat of the Moment. And you know what that song was about? In the heat of the moment, you make bad decisions. And that was what people were doing when they were filling out a lot of these surveys. I'm not saying they were lying, 
but they were under duress to use a legal term. And I can now point to other surveys that came out recently, including one that came out a couple of days ago from KPMG, which showed a very different answer that big companies want their employees back in the office soon rather than what they had said six months ago. So the known knowns aren't quite as solid as you think when you see the new surveys, which say, hey, people are coming back. Yes, it's not going to be normal, normal, normal till next year, but it's going to feel a whole lot more normal, 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 probably in September. Well, th this is very fluid, right? Because I think our, um, the, the fact, perhaps the fact that the vaccine rollout um, has proceeded much faster than we had anticipated it might um, just a few months ago means that people's expectations maybe about what is possible uh, in terms of reentry have adjusted. And so if you've kind of oriented your thinking to think it's a look, it's going to be months and months, uh, then uh, maybe you, you, you give di different answers to those kinds of things uh, where, where there really is the potential to have large numbers of people come back sooner. Um, all things equal, certainly business leaders seem like they would rather, rather have that happen. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of organizations are starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel, right? We had a big announcement this week from de Blasio in New York about bringing 80,000 municipal office workers back starting in phases, starting on May 3rd, not far away. Um, There's also a recent survey from the Partnership for New York City, which was quite interesting, which um, at least in that moment, Spencer's point had predicted um, at least 50% of employees returning by September. But I think the bigger question is, what is work going to look like when they return, right? When we do start hitting this tipping point on broader reoccupancy and we don't have a crystal ball, but if I had to make one prediction, it would be that the last year has set a new expectation for a lot of employees about the level of flexibility they will expect going forward. Um, we've done a lot of a lot of surveying, a lot of engaging with clients, and there's a real recognition that I think some level of employee flexibility is going to be here, going to be here to stay. Um, I think we're going to see far smaller populations of truly remote workers or people who aren't spending any time in offices. More so, folks kind of splitting some balance of time each week between the office and home. So when you say, uh, Spencer, in the heat of the moment, couldn't resist, but um, why do you think it was so different six months ago? It, was that due to more panic or like John was saying, even till about a month ago, we didn't know, you know, how prevalent we, mm -hmm. or, or how available vaccines would be. Do you think that that's changing very, very fast now? Uh, absolutely. It's the vaccine has a big part to do with it. But also, many of the large companies that are headquartered in New York have global presences. And these global presences include their offices in China, their offices in Australia. Uh, I, I was on the phone this morning with my colleagues in Australia. They're in the office. My colleagues in China, they're in the office. Mm. And they say, gee, this is possible. This is working. And so I think it's the combination of the optimism from the vaccine, the optimism from looking at other countries around the world is saying this could work here in New York, too. 
And, and, and the rate of vaccination, I just saw a report, I think the president had a press conference um, today uh, where he, he said his goal is to very quickly double the rate of vaccine distribution from where it is now. And it's even now substantially higher than it was, uh, you know, only a few weeks ago. Uh, so, so I have a question yeah. that uh, Spencer's comment uh, spurred and, and either Sarah or Spencer, please answer it. But um, current New York City office occupancy compared to other markets, it sounds like, you know, from you being on the phone uh, with China and Australia, current office occupancy is very different than it is in New York, because in, in New York, there seems to be a very small percentage back in offices. What's your comment there? I'll speak to New York, Spencer, and then I'd love to hear your more global perspective. CBRE property management collects a lot of this data around just literally badge swipes, right, in the buildings that we manage. And as of a couple of weeks ago, the level of occupancy was only 12%. And that was only up from 6% in June when offices were allowed to reopen. And I think not just globally, it's interesting to compare that to what we're seeing in the surrounding suburbs where occupancy levels are closer to 40%. That's a big difference, right? Well, that's the same thing we're seeing now. I think a lot of that is driven by commute anxiety, right? It's the same thing we're seeing nationally. If you go outside of the New York or San Francisco or LA, really the California, New York, uh, or other high density cities, uh, it gets to that 40% level very quickly. Uh, and then when you go even further afield, and I guess Australia is about as far afield as you can go, it uh, gets even higher than that. Um, and the reason is very straightforward. People feel and actually are safer uh, in some of these places at the moment. And once people feel and actually are safer in New York, New York's going to get back to those numbers too. I think the key question for New York isn't the office buildings per se, though that's what we're talking about. It's the mass transit. When are people going to get back on the trains? Yeah. Right. Right, right. Well, I, Spencer, interesting your thoughts about Florida in particular, because, you know, there was all of this press about, uh, you know, sort of this mass migration to Florida. Especially Wall Street. And then, more, uh, yeah. And then more recently, I've seen stories about, uh, you know, people coming back. There was one executive who was quoted as saying, the problem with moving your business to Florida is that you got to live in Florida, um, right? And I'm not necessarily ascribing to that view uh, about Florida, but where where do you think where, where do you think that's well? Let me just start off by telling to that executive, you should go to Miami with me, because my favorite <laughs> bar in the world is the Ball and Chain. It's in it's in Little Havana. It's right across the street from this little shop. You get the best Cuban sandwich, best Cuban coffee in the world. And Miami is booming, not just because it has an awesome scene like that. It's got an awesome scene down the street in Wynwood, which is uh, where they hold the Art Basel Festival. And we, people are moving offices there. And I, I say this point blank. This is the first time in my career that Miami is currently the number one office market in America based upon hmm. leasing activity, based upon expected rent growth. And notwithstanding this executive's experience, and again, whoever that executive is, next time you're in Miami, we'll hit the town. But the point is, is that from a commercial real estate perspective, it is doing exceptionally well, and we expect that to continue. Cool. So looking forward, uh, Sarah touched upon it a little bit, like where occupancy in New York City is is now ar ar around uh, 12 percent. What do we think about the pace of return when that might change? I, I guess it comes down to what you're both saying, too. When will people mm -hmm. subject themselves to the potential or the perceived risk of mass transit? But what do you see there are macro trends impacting like New York City reentry? 
So I think all we have to go on right now is what we're hearing anecdotally from large organizations in New York about their potential plans for reentry, right? Well, I'll go beyond anecdotes um, and just say <laughs> that the most, and I say this not to uh, be negative about any type of employee, what they do, but the most productive employees that I have visited the offices are already back in the offices, the top producers uh, in most cases. Uh, that's not just in New York, that's in Washington, DC, Baltimore, and other offices I've visited. And that's gonna lead to other people wanting to be there. And you know what else to, and again, we could talk about need, we could talk about want. Office use hasn't been a quote need for most people for over a decade. It is a want. People want to go to the office because it makes them better. It makes them more productive. You can attract and retain talent. Imagine you're a 25 year old professional out of college or MBA school. Where do you want to work? Do you want to work at your home or do you want to work with people like yourselves? So I think a lot of these things where we focus on the need aspect are misplaced. You don't need to go to a restaurant either. You don't need to go to a hotel. You want to go and you will go. Yeah. Well, I kind of wish you hadn't said that, Spencer, because Ronan has been consistently going back in the office. I have not, um, but I think Spencer hit the nail on the head. I am, I am, in fact, a top producer, wouldn't you say? Producer of uh, what? I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> podcast podcast content. But yeah, yeah all right. I, I do a lot more than this. No, podcast, I love you, John, right? like a pet rock. But yeah, no, you, you're 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 absolutely right. But then then it comes down to like I laugh at myself when I say this, but. As an executive of a firm, it also puts us in a position of it's it's hard to to get the data uh, where you feel with any conviction level you can tell your employees or require your employees to go back. So what we've done, and I'm, I'm guessing, Sarah, why it's 12 percent is we've just said, look, it's totally optional. Spencer's right. I'm going bananas sitting in my house. I traveled last week and I was told I have to stay home for 10 days and it feels like a prison sentence. But that's because personally... I'm a social creature. I like to get out. I, th I think you can get things done. Um, you know, a lot of times people will say they're much more productive, productive at home. I, I don't know if I believe it, but like, okay. But it's very hard anyway from my seat to give anybody, like people ask us all the time, when are you going to require us to come back? And sort of like Sarah was saying with the de Blasio announcement and the more of those type of announcements we see happen and you see people you know, not to make light of it, but not getting sick and everything like that. Well, well then we'll have more conviction on making decisions, but we're totally up yeah. in the air for now. Yeah, and, and I will say to Spencer's point, it's a completely different prospect between working remotely for a year during a pandemic and working remotely forever. Yeah. I think a lot of organizations now, while what we heard from our data is that many report they've been able to remain remarkably productive. They are starting to see impacts to culture and engagement, right? Just think about the impacts on the average employee life cycle from onboarding to mentorship to performance management over time. You know, the types of, if you think about your own organization, right, and the types of activities and engagements that made the experience of working there really rich and rewarding, right? Getting together with your teammates, um, having those keg nights in the office. That you <laughs> that, that's allegedly it's true. Those types of experiences that really drive culture and engagement. Yep. And I think even if we're not seeing impacts to productivity, we're inevitably going to start seeing impacts there, right? right. 
there, there have to be an on kind of mental health and all other kinds of things. It's like people, we can't live in the matrix uh, for, you know, like an extended period of time. Uh, but, but I'm curious to get your thoughts too about uh, when, when large numbers of businesses do come back and let's assume that they'll come back in such a form that um, they're there for a lot of businesses, there will be some kind of uh, hybrid model that uh, people allow people working more time away from home um, with time in the office. How is that going to affect the configuration of real estate and um, what it is uh, employers, uh, how, how they change the workspace, um, if at all? Sure. I think number one, it all depends on where you are in your real estate life cycle. Right. I will tell you, we're hearing a huge amount of interest in unassigned seating strategies and strategies like activity based working, mm -hmm. right? Where instead of coming in and reporting to an assigned desk or private office, you come to kind of a shared network of spaces, right? A collection of desks, huddle rooms, meeting rooms that you share with your team. And that's under the prediction that people may continue to do a lot of that individual knowledge work at home and come to the office more so for those opportunities to connect and collaborate with their teams. Um, we surveyed 40 of CBRE's largest managed accounts a few weeks ago and found that I think it was 81% either strongly considering or already planning to implement such strategies, right? Interesting. Well, well, the un unique thing about working at a trading desk or a business like that, and IEX was the first one of those that I'd ever been a part of, is that you are, if you're, you're sitting out on the floor um, anyway, mm -hmm. right? And so that configuration is, is necessarily kind of a collaborative thing um, to begin with, because you hear, you overhear conversations, you get involved in discussions just because you happen to be in that space. Uh, and I ended up, I, I found that I really liked it. Um, I thought I was going to hate it, but um, uh, that's... The answer, there's no not going to be a one-size-fits-all answer, right? It's going to be different based on industry and based on an individual organization, right? And the functions that you have inherent. So is there concern there within the business? Like, um, I don't get them as much as, as, as I was, you know, call it six months ago, but I was constantly getting emails. You want to renegotiate your lease and all this type of stuff. Use us. We'll help you out. And then, Sarah, you're saying people might go back to a more shared environment, uh, like a hoteling environment. Well, that would lend itself to companies then potentially needing less real estate over time. Is, is there a concern there um, going forward? Or do we think that there will, there will be a recovery? I'm not asking for prediction on exactly when, but like a lot of our listeners are, are on Wall Street and I, I think they'd be interested in your thoughts yeah. there. Well, I'll let Spencer finish the answer to this question, but I'll start by saying, First, beware the allure of false math when it comes to workplace strategies, right? Your people working from home 30% of the time doesn't necessarily mean that you need 30% less space. I think it's more so about a reallocation of the space that you have to make sure that you're supporting the types of activities that you really want to optimize when people are in the office. Um, but Spencer, what do you think about well, that? I think, I think Sarah, you used the right word right. in the middle of her answer, which is activity. Um, and I use one other word, agile workspace. It means that the square footage of your central business district office that is leased directly uh, may shrink marginally, but you still need that extra, extra space because most of our occupier clients lease 
10 to 20 to 30% extra, extra space by definition for growth. They're still going to need that. And so what, what we're going to see is, number one, some of that's going to be taken up by more flex space in the building. And we know based upon many of these surveys, it's the number one amenity that many of our top clients want. And it's also going to be made up by some flex space in spoke locations, with the hub being the central business district and the spoke being in the suburbs or someplace else. So the total square footage, while there may be a marginal decrease in some of the direct leasing for the main office, overall may not drop overall with flex space and this spoke. It, it makes sense because I'll say like, again, John was talking about our space. We, we sit in a trading room uh, space. We have an entire floor and probably sit most everybody on one quarter of the floor. And then we have conference room space, which just you can never have enough conference rooms apparently. But like that flex space where we were talking before we came online, we have a kitchen with like kegerators and seating areas. And it'll probably become more important to have um, those type of spaces if people are not in the office every day. So yeah, I, I do agree because people ask us, you know, are you going to sit lease some of your floor? I'm, no, we, 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 we love our office space. We're not doing anything there. Yeah. But I'm, I'd just be curious, you know, so I, I think asked and answered. I was just curious what others were doing on average. You know, I think success is not going to be making your employees come back in. It's going to be making your employees want to come back in, yep. right? Take beer work. I think yeah, are going to have to think a lot bigger about the type of experience that they do provide in their workplaces. So, How are we providing something that's better than what people have at home, right? The want factors are key. Wanting to go in, to learn the communication skills, to network with your own employees. But there is a negative side to this. And, and the negative side of this has to do with the cultural aspect of do you treat differently the people that are working from home and the people that are in the office? I, I learned a new word the other day. Every time I learn a new word, I think about Don King. Is this, like, is this actually a word? But the word is called presentism. Is that do you treat your employees better because they come to the office versus not? And is that fair? Is that the right thing to do? particularly if you tell some people they never need to come in. So uh, you have those kind of issues. You also have insurance issues. If somebody is working at home, and I happen to be sitting in my home right now, and I have five coffee cups on my desk. If I should get up and slip and fall, well, am I working? Whose responsibility is that? So there are a lot of issues that sound great on paper, but still have yet to be worked out. Well, right. And even if you don't, even if you say that you don't treat people differently, um, if they're coming into the office, I, they, they may not, uh, they may not believe you, they may not be confident um, that you really won't. Um, and, 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 and maybe in some cases, there's reasons for that. A question came to mind. So hopefully this makes sense. But we, we've a lot of um, young people working at IEX who are lucky enough to live in the city and rent apartments, and they're living the life. And many of them have told us that, um, They've been able to renegotiate because those are usually shorter term leases than like our 10 year office leases. They've been able to renegotiate, uh, renegotiate like 30% down. We, we talked earlier about like firms like ourselves who already have space. Are we going to lower the amount of space? H how is it with, um, first of all, if people are renegotiating, are they in a really good place to renegotiate or has the uh, amount of people looking for new space or expansion space dropped off uh, dramatically? I, I would assume so, but what do I know? Well, what we call those people in our business yeah. are TIMS, tenants in market. And I track TIMS very closely in the major markets and on the smaller markets. And I guess there is, if there's one really, really good green shoot out there, is that the amount of TIMS has increased materially recently. 
Really? And that means there are more people looking. Now, a, a doubter would call them tire kickers, but there are definitely more activity, not only in office, but in retail. And typically, the leasing cycle is six to nine months. So we would expect for them to show up on the scoreboard of actually closing deals in six to nine months. Your other question is, what is the window of opportunity? And yep. unfortunately, New York, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, the major high-density markets, the window of opportunity may be a little bit longer than it will be in Nashville, Charlotte, Raleigh, Dallas, where they're coming back sooner. So there may be a longer window in which to negotiate. But nevertheless, we believe that the window will be much shorter here than it was during the global financial crisis. Makes sense. So outside of New York, sorry to hug the uh, mic, uh, John, but outside of New York, we've talked a lot about New York and you guys were mentioning how you know, the badge in rate is higher because maybe it's because people are driving to work and don't feel subjected to mass transit. What do you think about long-term shifts there? Meaning in New York, I would expect the adoption or, you know, presentism aside, will will allow more people to work from home. Do you, do you think it'll be the same outside of New York or, or any kind of macro trends outside of New York City, uh, both domestically and internationally? What do you think? Okay, so what you're referring to is another term that we use a lot around here, which is acceleration of trend. And one of the trends that has accelerated is people moving from New York, San Francisco to Phoenix, to Nashville. Um, and some people are moving not just to these smaller, hip, cool markets here. They're moving in places like Germany. They're moving from Frankfurt to, to Munich. And let me tell you something. Munich is awesome. Um, yeah. I've, I've had a really good time in Munich. But the point I did is Oktoberfest once. Yes. I mean, great job. By the way, you know, while, while we're talking Ireland, I had a great time in Belfast and Dublin too. Okay. So let's just cut to the chase. That, that's, that's Munich every weekend. Spencer is missing traveling. I miss traveling more than anybody. I did 200,000 miles. I want back on the road. But nice. But what we're really saying here is you have to look at demographics in, in a variety of ways. But the two major ways we look at it is one is the gross numbers of people. And the second is, what types of people are leaving, right? And so we did studies on both New York and San Francisco, and, and they showed, you know, putting it right on the table, a net number of people are going to leave both of those cities and go to the types of cities I'm talking about. But what are they going to have a net inflow of? And it goes back to this whole question of productivity and education level. They're going to get a disproportionate share of the most highly educated, highly paid people coming into these cities and those are the people that drive real estate demand because there's what's known in our business as a multiplier effect. So for every four to six office using jobs, you have demand for one more multifamily unit. For everybody making over 100K, there's demand for two or three more retail jobs, demand for eight more hotel nights. So those employees, while there'll be less people overall, the most highly paid, highly uh, educated folks will still flock back to New York and San Fran. Um, so I am very bullish on its future. I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that because I, uh, I'm somebody who um, well, you know, spent most of my life never living in a place that I felt like fit me. And New York for the first time was a place that felt like fit me. So I'm, I don't plan to leave. You know, I want to I want to stay there. And I remember uh, living downtown New York after 9-11 when, you know, all of these people were predicting, oh, it's, it's over, it's going to take years to recover, real estate's going to, you know, crater. Prices leveled off, as I remember, for about a half hour. Um, and then, you know, it, it didn't last long at all. Um, but, but 
But interested to get your thoughts in to the extent that there is some effect on the mix of people who are able to live into the in the city um, and to move back in. Is there are there some positive aspects of that? Um, are there are is there there the ability of because I feel like for a long time now there are a lot of the people who kind of traditionally made New York in particular Manhattan kind of uh, what what it was. Uh, just people were priced out. They couldn't afford to. They couldn't afford it. Um, do, do, do you think that the new New York uh, may uh, look a little different in that regard? Well, the current New York, uh, and to quote one of my uh, great colleagues, Marianne Tai, as she said on a, a podcast I was doing the other day, she said that there are 190 different languages spoken in New York today. Uh, so when you look at New York, if you look at the broader New York, not just Manhattan, but the boroughs, it is an unbelievably diverse place, unbelievable types of people. I'll give you the fastest funny story ever. I had a couple of colleagues of mine who came in from out of town and normally you go to some fancy restaurant in Manhattan. I said, no, you know where we're going? We're going to Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. And we went there and had an Italian meal. The joke is I said, let me see your wallet. Let me see your watch. And now let me see you get back to Manhattan. But that's a, (laughs) (laughs) the point is, is New York is bigger than Manhattan. Um, will there yeah, be some sure. uh, ability of people to get priced into Manhattan that were priced out? Yes, but only marginally. Manhattan is going to stay, um, you know, well outside the price range of, of most folks, um, and be, because of demand for units, because people are paid a premium to come here. Makes sense, John. Do you have any other questions before we open up the Q and A? Uh. Not at this moment. Why don't we open up the What's Q&A? the value of John's apartment? No, um, anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Right. No, I'm not giving it up. I'm, I'm, Give it up, John. I'm Give it up. It. You always complain about the size of it. Sarah from Marketing. That sounds like Jake from State Farm. Sorry, <laughs> no, Sarah. No. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Do you have any questions? Yeah, so we have, a, we have a few questions here. I think the biggest one that we've heard from people is they're wondering about other different markets. So Spencer, you obviously mm-hmm. mentioned Miami, uh, but people are curious. We have some specifics around New York State, outside the city, New Jersey, a bunch of New Jersey people, uh, but also Ontario, Texas, Virginia. We have a Wisconsin question um are you seeing anything interesting or unique in those those markets or others that people might be surprised about yeah and i want to ask about austin too so make sure you include well, well i'll give austin one big shout out our cbre's investor intention survey came out today and for the first time ever austin came in as the number one city in america for where investors want to put their money in just so you know la came in number one three years in a row prior to that but really? what, this is what you know, and this is what you don't know. What you know is that the hip, cool cities are Nashville and Denver and Phoenix and Miami and Tampa and Orlando. What you don't know is this, is that even in cities that um, are uh, older industrialized cities, like a Milwaukee, all right? And didn't hear that. Did hear a Wisconsin okay. question. You know what's really cool in Milwaukee? The Third Ward, which is a new part of town that used to be an old industrial section. Now is hip, cool, young, just like all these other places. And so even if you go to some of these old school cities, there are some new school neighborhoods that rock and you can get in there for one third the price you can get into neighborhoods in New York, Chicago, et cetera. So the reinvention that's going on, even in these old school cities, give them life as well. What about New, what Spencer, about New Jersey? 
Sorry, go, go ahead, Sarah. I could, I could have seen the, the flight to the suburbs that was predicted at the beginning of the pandemic. Sure, I will come back to Jersey first and then suburb. The reason why I, di I diss Jersey is I'm a lifelong Jets fan, and I call that 50 years of pain. All right, so I've got a, I've got a bone to pick with you guys. But that said, um, New Jersey has great opportunity. And I will now here's my biggest shout out of all. A study came out early in the pandemic and asked, what is the most resilient corridor in the United States during the pandemic? And they rated like 400 different MSAs. It was the Trenton to Princeton corridor came in number one. Why? Eds and meds. New Jersey has it all. They have great eds. They have got mm. great med universities, biopharma, et cetera. And that, I don't have to tell anybody who looks at life sciences, those are industries of today and the future. So New Jersey's bright, eds and meds, that study showed it and I'll send it to anybody. Explain why our fucking taxes are where they are, sorry. Well, that's a whole other matter. <laughs> Children are watching this, this podcast for, for God's But to sake. Sarah's question on the suburbs, there are there's a term that we used before called acceleration of trend. Uh, we think that, yes, there was some acceleration of trend of people living into the suburbs. And one of the big trends we're seeing in commercial real estate today is single family rental, not just ownership. But I do not see mm. that as a durable trend as it relates to the movement of headquarters of companies. Companies are still going to disproportionately have their headquarters downtown. I don't want to give you a horror story, but there was uh, several large banks 20 years ago who tried to move their headquarters out of New York into Stanford, Connecticut, they moved back because they couldn't attract and retain talent. And so that is really what it comes down to. Young, highly educated, talented folks want to live in the cities. Yep. Interesting, thanks. Um, so I know this might not be your specific expertise, but we have a question around uh, what's the outlook for retail in Manhattan? Um, People are seeing a lot of empty storefronts. Madison Avenue is dismal. What's the, what's the outlook on that and how big of an impact does that have? Well, the issue with Manhattan retail isn't retail. It is a capital markets issue. People pay too much for some of these buildings and they can't drop rents to what would be mm -hmm. deemed to be market, right? So essentially, if you bought a building and you underwrote a thousand bucks a foot and the going rate is 700 or 650, and the implication of that is you, you hand the keys back to the bank, you're not going to drop your rents. You're going to hold on as long as you can to keep moving forward. So just so you know, it's not that people don't want to retail in Manhattan. Is that not that people don't want to visit Manhattan? I had a good friend of mine who just visited the mall at Hudson Yards this past weekend, said it was happening, right? So there's plenty of people who want to visit retail in Manhattan. It's just this capital markets issue that's getting in the way. So what we are going to see over time as we see more foot traffic back in the city, you're going to see more concepts coming in. Yes, there is going to be some damage in its wake because the National Restaurant Association believes that up to 20% of restaurants will never reopen. Uh, up to 15% of gyms will never reopen. But Manhattan is nothing but resilient. But they do have to get past this capital markets issue that I, I referenced. Mm -hmm. Right, because Manhattan restaurants have been, uh, you know, sort of always in a, a fair amount of churn, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you've got new restaurants traditionally opening up all the time. Um, and so, but, but 
I, I live in the, I used to live, hopefully I'll go back uh, to the West Village. Uh, and the complaint that I had often is a lot of the small neighborhood businesses and bookstores and coffee shops and all of that had just been priced out of the market. Uh, are they going to stay priced out? Or do you think any of those businesses are going to be able to, to reestablish? Well, themselves? once again, to the extent you do not have a capital markets issue, those businesses will have the opportunity to come back, A, because rents will drop. Clearly, they're dropping today. But uh, that's part A. But part B, I expect government incentive programs for formation of new business to be strong, to be robust uh, for the next couple of years. So there's a unique window here of lower rent, more government incentives. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go right there and say it, right? The most important thing in economics is called pent-up demand. And if you don't think mm. that there is the biggest pent-up demand in the history of the world right now, you got another thing yeah. coming People want to spend money in restaurants, in bars. And I know this for a fact because I got friends all over the world. And it's going to happen here in Manhattan. And people are going to want to be the first guy to sell them a beer. I think just what Ronan's uh, got his own, maybe. Uh, the I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. yeah, I mean, thinking about retail and bars and restaurants, it's also related to office occupancy, right, Spencer? Because you have some of these central business dis districts that have been quasi abandoned, right, for almost a year now, and they really need that foot traffic to start. My father, uh, who passed away 10 years ago, was the number one customer at a steak restaurant called Ben Benson's on 52nd Street between oh, 7 yeah, and I know. 7. Okay, he ate lunch there every single day for 20 years. <laughs> My sister was married there, okay? <laughs> and then the lunch crowd went away. Uh, and the lunch crowd started going away starting in the early 2000s, and, you know, call it what it is, and they were no longer so-called wet lunches. People weren't drinking lunch anymore. They lost it and Ben's went out of business. Um, and so operating a business in Manhattan as a restaurant and just to have a one meal a day kind of turn is tough. So I would love to see the lunch crowds come back as well. But that's one of the challenges of the restaurant business in New York. You heard it here. Spencer wants us all to start drinking at lunch again. <laughs> That's a paraphrase <laughs> to my comment. I'm up. I'm on. Came out of road and not me. <laughs> Go have a steak and a few whiskeys and come back to the office. <laughs> Perfect for a trading floor. Sarah, any other ones? Yes. Yeah, so this is, um, I think, a nuance around something, Sarah, you were talking about earlier regarding mm -hmm. um, employee space and how much space you need if some people are um, more comfortable remote, but at the same time, uh, the requirement, there's requirements to space employees farther out. So uh, the question is, you know, do you have any thoughts on the net effect to commercial real estate of these, these themes around the space that people need? Uh, what's the give and take between having pe fewer people in the office, but also more space for employee? I had to make a prediction. If someone was planning space in New York City from scratch tomorrow, I think those two factors would potentially almost balance each other out, right? But I think it depends on where you started from. I think we will see the pendulum swing back from those densest, most examples of space planning that we saw pre-pandemic. You know, we were having, seeing some co-working facilities plan space at like 75 square feet per person. That's really tight. Um, I think people have more of an expectation now for a reasonable level of distance and elbow room in the personal space that they occupy in an office. I don't think everything's gonna look like a law firm in the future, but I do think we could see some, some reasonable de-densification, if you will, that could balance out 
kind of the need for fewer individual seeds going forward. That's interesting. Um, I'm learning all these words, de-densification, presentism, but what, do, do you have, um, I, you know, not to put you on the spot, but like you were saying, it was getting down to like as low as 75 square foot per employee. What, what was that 10 years ago? More than 75? Well, 75 square feet per, is probably the densest you would yeah. get for planning, right? I think over time we've seen, I don't know if you, and again, this is something that really varies by industry, right? You've seen those numbers come down from, call it maybe 350 to 250 square feet per person to 200 square feet per person or below is what was considered an efficient standard for planning for real estate. Right? The other thing I like to keep in mind is it differs by industry. I, I started off my career as a young lawyer in Manhattan. I spent half my time in the copy room. Do they still have copy rooms? I spent <laughs> yes. half my time in the law library. Do they still have law libraries? Because a lot of technological disruption to some industries mean they may have de-densified or, or densified, but they just didn't need as much space for certain uses. Yeah, like John was saying, we, we sit in a trading room setup, so we, we definitely don't. I don't think we have seven. I got 75 square feet. I'm going to bring in the measuring tape. But uh, I even remember prior to IEX, when we were at, many of us were at RBC, on one floor, it was an entire trading room. There was like 800 of us. So we were packed in there. I don't think that's going to be okay going forward. Or, or, or at least people will not feel comfortable in that type of situation going forward. Really interesting question. Right. Sarah, do we have any other questions? Yeah, we have a couple. We have a couple more. Um, yep. One, I would say, is um, industry-wise. So you mentioned industries just now. Um, are you? We talked about different geographies and people coming back in the outlook. Are there some industries that seem much more bullish on coming back or need to come back sooner because of their business models? Um, is there anything kind of surprising there that you've seen? The hottest areas in real estate right now are what we call OPERI operational real estate segments. And that includes life sciences, data centers, cold storage, self-storage, single family rental. Uh, so a lot of these places that have been um, highlighted by the pandemic, like life sciences is doing very, very well. But really it talks to the broader technology industry, which we still believe is gonna be the number one driver of growth. We've already seen the largest leasing activity in 2020 were tech industries on the far west side. But we also know that eds and meds, as I talked about earlier, and yes, this is my second shout out to my buddy, Jeremy Newer, New Jersey. I still show New Jersey love, damn it. What about places like WeWork and co-working spaces? Does this pandemic completely blow up their business model and does that have a big impact on the overall? Um, Once again, when I talk about there's fundamental issues and then there are capital markets issues. WeWork had a capital markets problem. They were overextended, right? Yep. But fundamentally, we think that the flex space is going to be not just stronger, but much stronger post-pandemic than it was pre-pandemic because people are going to want not only flexibility within the buildings they occupy their headquarters, but they're going to want more of these so-called spoke locations, and they're not going to want to go long-term in them. They're going to want to take flex space. In fact, during the pandemic, if you go to some of the operators like the WeWorks, like the Regis's of the world, they did very well in these suburban locations because people realized working mm -hmm. in the house means you're always working. Yeah, amen to that. 
Oh, God, don't give him any, Father, please. <laughs> right, I, I, you know, you don't think I've been working hard, Ryan? Give me a break. Well, that actually, that brings me to something, uh, Sarah, that we were talking about earlier. Are you seeing kind of creative ideas from businesses about how they could set up things like this hub and spoke or, you know, different re remote working locations where employees can go in different areas around the country or around the world? Uh, do you think there is going to be more creative ideas if you're thinking about that same kind of like want need uh, getting people to want to go back to being in person yeah the, the hub and spoke concept is interesting and and spencer keep me honest here this is something we heard a lot about in the early days of the pandemic right as something that was going to be huge right to address some of these issues around uncertainty have we seen all of that come to fruition in in actual decision making around real estate I think not so much as what was originally predicted. And, and I have a, a prediction as to why that is. If we think about the purpose of the physical office, right, versus the experience of working from home, the biggest value proposition of our physical offices is bringing our people together, right, to have meaningful interactions and collaboration. And if you have people at a bunch of different locations, you're kind of defeating that purpose, right? So it could definitely provide a venue uh, closer to people's homes for individual work. Um, but I think if you're if you see the value proposition of your office as a venue to be really the mothership of your organization and bringing people together, that hub and spoke strategy might not necessarily work for that. Yeah, well, the other thing that, that manifested itself kind of in at the macro data level over the last year. Yeah, and the, the thing that occurs to me too is that if you're with a hub and spoke sort of um, structure is that from a standpoint of in, either individual um, employee satisfaction and or advancement, it may make a difference whether you're part of the hub rather than part of the spoke, um, right? I mean, I always, because I've worked at a lot of organizations where there was that kind of, and I, I never wanted to be uh, one in, in, in an outlying location because I always felt Presentism, like- John. What's that? Presentism. <laughs> Presentism. Presentism. Did, did you yeah, listen earlier in this podcast? Sarah Foster, can you try and rescue him? Is there any more questions? Those are the main ones. I would say the last one here, um, should people see residential or commercial as a leading indicator? Uh, if they're thinking about real estate, then we'll wrap it up. Okay. So um, I will, I'll answer, I'll give a third category here. The capital markets always lead the fundamentals. People start buying before they start uh, actually seeing the leasing activity actually show up on the scoreboards. That's part A. Uh, but B, uh, residential will clearly lead um, the um, uh, commercial side because they're short-term leases. And I think that this summer's leasing season in Manhattan is going to be very strong because people are saying, you know what, September, this thing is going to be hopping again and I want my apartment back. So uh, residential, I think, is clearly going to be the, uh, the leading indicator. Cool. Make, makes a lot of sense. So uh, for wrap-up, traditionally, we, ha we have a question that we ask all our guests. And it's a, it's a question for each of you to answer. Can you please tell us your favorite Wall Street movie and why? So we were, when we were discussing this earlier this week, I thought I had a very unique answer in trading places that have actually heard that a lot of your recent guests have used It actually that. came so up, thought... Sarah, again at a podcast on Tuesday, believe it or not. So it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> great movie. 
So I, I went back to what is actually one of my all-time favorite movies, which is Working Girl with Melanie Griffith. Oh, first that. time someone's chosen that one. Yeah. Nice. Staten Island, Barry Upward gets a shot. Mobility, a lot of great 80s fashion and hairdos. Yep. And, and the hair. Yeah, the Staten Island poofing hair. <laughs> that was great. Nice. Well, in honor of superhero movies, I'm going with Superman 3, where Richard Pryor was a uh, computer genius, and he was able to extract 0.001 cents out of every transaction that ever happened, and he became a billionaire overnight. And since you are a prominent trading firm and you make fractions of a penny, uh, it was Richard Pryor who invented it first. Nice. Oh my God. So he actually implemented the stock transfer tax uh, himself. <laughs> he just kept it himself. He, he might be, he, I think he's the, he's the definition of New Jersey. Sorry, I'll get off the New Jersey thing. Yeah. Well, great, great selections both. And before we let you leave, we always say no one leaves here with nothing. And usually on our podcast, we give out a pair of next to nothing. Next but, to nothing. Yeah. We give out a pair of uh, socks. They're actually very good boxes and line socks. 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 But for you guys, we're gonna like we're gonna Zeus. let you choose. Yeah, in, in honor of Doctor Zeus, we're gonna let you choose between an IEX hoodie or an IEX windbreaker, and we'll send you the link. To thank you so much for for doing this, it was a really nice conversation. Thank you very much, everyone. We appreciate it. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you. Thank I feel you. like Bono. Good night, everyone. Good God bless. and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.